Am I on the ear? Thank you, Adrian. (laughs) Good. Um, We are continuing in our series in Luke's Gospel. And um, we've been following Jesus on a journey. And it's a journey to the cross. That's always been his intention, right from the beginning. And we are approaching the end of that journey in terms of the Bible time, just about another week to go. And um, today we're in Luke 19, verse 28 to 40. And in most Bibles, this is headed the triumphal entry. A triumphal entry. So let's, let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for its truth, for its steadfastness. Lord, thank you for its eternal nature. Lord, always true. And Lord, we ask you this morning that you'll help us, Lord, to hear what you want to say to us through your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll see our passage opens with the words, and when he had said these things. And um, this is referring back to the passage and the, the verses that um, David covered last week, the earlier verses. And uh, you remain, may remember that Jesus told a parable about a nobleman who went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Before he went, he gave ten of his servants sums of money to invest in business Uh, in preparation for his return. However, his citizens hated him, saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. In telling this parable, Jesus was foreshadowing what was to happen to him in just a few days, but also at the end of the age. I trust you'll see see the connection as we look through our passage for today the connection with what Jesus was teaching there. So we begin. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near Pethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has yet sat, untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, throwing their cloaks on the colt. They set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And he, as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. 
He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Well, this is a a familiar passage, something that typically would be read on the Sunday before Easter that has become known as Palm Sunday. All the four gospel writers describe this incident, but they each have unique detail that gives us a fuller picture of what's going on. Strictly speaking, what Luke describes is the preparation and the approach rather than the actual entry into the city, whereas Matthew and Mark describe the entry. All three other Gospels mention the crowd cutting branches and spreading them on the road. But interestingly, only John says that they are palm branches, which traditionally have come to describe this event, Palm Sunday. Uh, The disciples and others were streaming up to Jerusalem for the Passover. They had for a long time watched and waited for Jesus to proclaim himself as the Messiah. The miraculous deeds he had done throughout his ministry showed plainly that he had come from God. It was a happy scene with the disciples rejoicing. And Luke says there was a whole multitude of them, not just the twelve. They were praising God for all they'd seen and heard as they had accompanied Jesus on his travels. They quoted from the Messianic Psalm 118, which says, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They must have thought, it doesn't get better than this. The crowd wanted to see the Messiah claim his kingdom, and surely this is what he was now doing. But Jesus was under no illusion. His impending death was drawing near. As he uh, is entering Jerusalem for the last time, and he had already told his disciples three times that he would die at the hands of his enemies. And the third time, recorded in Luke's Gospel, gives us the most detail. That's Luke 18, 31 to 34. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spat upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they didn't grasp what was said. And then John comments, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. It's um, likely that even the disciples, along with the majority of people, in spite of what Jesus had told them, were expecting a deliverer from the Roman oppression and a restoration of the sovereignty of the nation of Israel. And there was undoubtedly a nationalistic fervour among the rejoicing people. And they would have based their expectations on the messianic prophecies in the law and the prophets that we would call the Old Testament. 
these prophecies about the coming Messiah fall into two major groups, and these groups could not seem further apart. There are those that describe him as a man despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as a lamb led to the slaughter, a picture of God's suffering servant. And then there are those that speak of a conquering king who will destroy his enemies and establish his kingdom on earth. Given that the nation was living under Roman domination, you can see why the people were preoccupied with the latter. Although both descriptions are valid, but for one fact, it is hard, if not impossible, to reconcile the two. And that fact is that the king comes twice. Once, 2,000 years ago, to bring salvation the second time at the end of the age to bring judgment. At his first coming, through his life and ministry, he demonstrates the power of the age to come and invites people to repent and escape the consequences of his second coming, namely the judgment of the living and the dead. We still live between those comings in a time of grace where God still makes his appeal to us and to all mankind through the gospel to repent and turn from sin and receive Jesus as Lord and Saviour. There's one incident in John's gospel where the crowd wanted to take Jesus by force and make him king, but he withdrew from them. As you read it, it seems he just slipped away. Perhaps the fact that the reality of his impending death was hidden from the disciples was to prevent them interfering with the purpose of God, as Peter had done on one occasion, as recorded in Matthew 16:21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things, from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So now by this time his popularity had grown and as he approached Jerusalem he needed to make a gesture to indicate that he was coming humbly as a suffering servant, not a conquering king because nothing, especially Satan, must get in the way of his appointment with the cross because that is why he had come. John tells us the words of Jesus, I did not come to judge the world but to save the world. In those days, when a Roman emperor gained a great victory over his enemy, he would ride into the city on a mighty war horse, followed by a long train of captives, distributing gifts of gold and silver to the people. Jesus rode on a donkey, which carried the significance he needed. He was not coming from the battlefield as a conquering hero, but going to the battlefield to become a conquering saviour. 
conquering sin and our greatest enemy, death. So he rides on a donkey, which signified that he was coming humbly and in peace. And in so doing, he fulfilled the prophecy of Zechariah, uh, chapter 9 and verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming, righteous and having salvation is he, humbly and mounted on a donkey, on the colt of a foal, the foal of a donkey. Jesus had been facing hostility from the Jewish leaders and now they were out to arrest him. But far from hiding in fear, Jesus came to Jerusalem publicly and triumphantly. Not a triumph of physical force, but a triumph of love and grace and mercy. And because the crowd was with him, his enemies could do nothing but lie in wait and try to trick him into condemning himself. But as we will see at the end of our reading, the Pharisees asked him to rebuke his disciples for the disturbance they were causing, probably fearful that it would all get out of hand and ruin their chances of silencing Jesus. He replies, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So what do we make of this statement of Jesus? It may just have been a turn of phrase to make a point. But as I was thinking about things, it, it struck me that here was the author of creation who had already demonstrated his authority over the wind and the waves on his way to carry out an act of redemption and reverse the effects of the fall, the disobedience of man at the beginning, which, was not, which not only brought judgment on mankind, but subjected the whole creation to corruption. Paul tells us in Romans 8, 21 to 22, there is a time coming when the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. And then in, in Colossians 1.19, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, not just people, but all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. I don't know if you've been aware, but over the last couple of weeks, we've been learning a new song. And the first line goes, who else would rocks cry out to worship? How appropriate. <laughs> and the next day, after he had cleansed the temple for the second time and had healed the blind and the lame that came to him, Matthew tells us that the chief priests and scribes were indignant that the children, having seen the wonderful things he had done, were crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. These leaders were blind to what even little children could clearly see. So as he approached Jerusalem, the disciples were rejoicing, whilst Jesus, knowing what was truly in the hearts of people, was heartbroken. 
as we will see from the next verses, how he wept bitterly over the city. Matthew records his words of lament in Matthew 23, 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. How could God's very own people not respond to his appeal to them? But he knows that one day he will be revealed, coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory with his holy angels to judge the world in what the Bible calls the final judgment. But he also knows that he must go to the cross if anyone is to be saved and escape that judgment. In the coming week, he teaches the disciples about the end of the age, particularly recorded in Matthew's Gospel, and the signs that will precede it, and about the judgment that will come upon the city within their lifetime, which will prefigure the end-time judgment. Now, there are three aspects to, to this uh, more immediate judgment. Firstly, Jesus brought judgment upon the leaders of Israel. The chief priests, the scribes, the elders, teachers of the law had failed to see in Jesus what was obvious even to little children. He had already exposed them as hypocrites and rebels, blind guides, leading the people astray. And now within four days, they would crucify their Messiah and bring down heavy judgment upon their nation. Secondly, he brought judgment on the temple. He had already purged its courtyards of, of money changers two years earlier, warning them that they had turned it into a market. And he did so again, warning them that they had made it a den of robbers. Mark records, it is, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Then thirdly, he brought judgment on the nation of Israel. Some people think that this was symbolized by the fig tree described in Matthew 21, that Jesus went to and found nothing there but leaves, no fruit, and he cursed it. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come on you again. And the fig tree withered at once. Four days later, the fickle crowds turned from shouting Hosanna to crying crucify and even calling down curses on themselves. I don't know if you remember, but at Jesus' trial before Pilate, Pilate washed his hands of the whole affair before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. And the people they just answered and said, his blood be on us and on our children. They called down curses on themselves. Nevertheless, God granted them 40 years of grace, a generation during which to repent, before the leaders, the temple and the nation, in the carnage of AD 70, 
when the Roman emperor Titus with his army attacked Jerusalem following a brutal five-month siege. The Romans destroyed the city and the temple just as Jesus predicted. Well, to conclude then, the Jews who welcomed Jesus with palm branches wanted a king. They wanted a conquering hero who would change things on earth, make life better for them. But he came humbly as a suffering servant to lay down his life in order not to make things better for them, but to change their hearts and to reconcile them to God and to save them from the wrath to come. That great and awesome day of the Lord when he would return. And he still invites us to voluntarily receive him as king and saviour and take up our cross and follow him. In the verses that follow the entry into Jerusalem, particularly in Matthew's account, Jesus warns that the long centuries of history, until he comes again, will be full of wars, famine, earthquakes, forced religion, backsliding and trouble. These were to show that God is not caught off guard or phased by the disasters and unrest that we now see so vividly on our televisions. These, Jesus tells us, will not simply mark the end of the age, but will be the labour pains of more than 2,000 years of history. He tells us that those who belong to him, who proclaim the gospel throughout the world, will be hated and betrayed, and the love of many will grow cold. Also, the church will be under pressure to compromise the truth and side with the world. Let's not be fooled. These pressures are very subtle at times because we want to engage with our society. We want to bless our community. We want to welcome people as Jesus did. But he did it without compromise, and so must we. Tragically, some churches today that are excellent in many respects, particularly in community support and engagement, have abandoned some essential elements of the gospel and discipleship. When Jesus addressed the seven churches of Asia, as recorded in uh, Revelation chapters 2 and 3, he judged one church because in spite of the fact that they were commended for much of what they were doing, they had abandoned their first love. And he says to the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2, 4 and 5, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember therefore where you from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to, remove, to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. The love they had at first was undoubtedly their love for Jesus, whether that was expressed in worship or obedience, but it would include love for his word as handed down by the apostles, that deposit of truth that has been entrusted to the church as custodian and indeed entrusted to us. For us as individual Christians, we can be sure in the knowledge 
that we will, be, will not be judged for our sins because Jesus was judged in our place and paid the penalty. But churches that compromise the truth and do not proclaim the authentic gospel may be removed. Now, of course, there will always be exceptions, but generally today, churches that proclaim and live out the authentic gospel that are faithful to the word of God and open to the Holy Spirit are growing and making disciples all round the world, whilst those that compromise in order to accommodate the world are not. Jesus set his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem and allowed his disciples a moment of rejoicing, but he pressed on to lay down his life so that at the end of the age, as the bridegroom, he might have a bride, his church, that would be his for all eternity. We'll end with a verse from Revelation, Revelation 19.7. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we live in an age of grace where the gospel of salvation, through the gospel of salvation, you invite people to repent, turn from sin, and receive Jesus as Lord and Saviour. Thank you that you have deferred the day of judgment because you're not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance. Help us as those who hold this life-transforming treasure, the truth of the gospel, to faithfully proclaim it in the power of the Spirit, so that this gospel of the kingdom and the king will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come and the king will return. Amen.